Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Minds with Bobby Mack and Caitlin. The object of this show is to speak to other philosophically minded and interesting people in an unassuming way as we explore some of life's biggest questions. And today we are joined by Hans Becklin and Tim Rice, who are board members of Esperanto USA. How are you guys? I'm Doing well. Quite well. Good, good. So this is a topic that is near to my heart because I had a vision very similar to the founder of Esperanto when I was 15 years old. I made a list of like 60 things I wanted to do before I die. And one of them was invent my own language. I had this idea that, oh my gosh, what if everyone just spoke this one simple language and then everyone could, and I was like, and then I looked it up and I thought, oh wow, well somebody actually did that already. So, <laughs> so, um, props to him he, he beat me to it by about 150 years but um uh could you tell us a little bit about the history and how this uh language came to be so i can take a stab at that or tim um i don't know uh how much detail do you want you you could keep going. We could tell you if you're yeah. <laughs> too much or too little. Um, well, Hans, do you want um, do you want to go? Sure. Yeah. So um, so basically, there was this guy named L. L. Samenhof, uh, and he lived in what is modern day Poland. Uh, although it wasn't Poland at the time, it was part of the Russian Empire. Poland didn't exist. Uh, what we know as modern day Poland was about half. Uh, ruled by Prussia, uh, and about half ruled by the Russian Empire. He lived in the Russian part, uh, and he was uh, a Jew, uh, and he was originally, or his parents originally were from um, what would now be Lithuania, uh, but he grew up in what is now Poland, uh, was born in a city called Bialystok. And I mentioned the name of the city because, in fact, Zamenhof wrote, uh, after Esperanto had already been published, that the reason that sort of similarly to you, uh, he sort of had this great and grand desire for an international language was because he grew up in a city where there were lots of different people from lots of different ethnic groups that all happened by, uh, you know, essentially historical happenstance to be thrown together in the Russian Empire. There were Russians who spoke Russian, there were Jews who spoke Yiddish, there were Germans who spoke German, and there um, were also Poles who spoke Polish. And they all sort of kept to themselves. They each had their own quarter of town, literally. Um, but of course, they had to interact. Um, they all had to interact with the government, which was in Russian. They had to um, interact in lots of other ways, too. Uh, and in fact, uh, there was a lot of antipathy when those interactions would take place, including uh, what we would now consider hate crimes or pogroms uh, that took place in the streets of Bialystok on a regular basis. Uh, and and Zamenhof had this maybe a bit naive, but nevertheless beautiful idea that oh, if they all just spoke the same language, uh, there would be much less misunderstanding and there would be much less um, you know, many fewer problems in Bialystok. So even when he was about 10 or 12 years old, this idea really fascinated him. Um, and he began sort of to think about, well, what would I want a language to be like? Uh, and he was pretty fortunate because his father was a language teacher uh, and also worked part of his life um, checking over uh, Yiddish and Hebrew periodicals as a part of the Russian censor's office, right? Because nothing could be printed in uh, the Russian empire without first being approved by the censor. Uh, so he grew up in a family where they spoke Russian, Polish, uh, and Yiddish at home, but he also learned Hebrew, learned Latin from his father, uh, learned German at school, and was just very much absorbing all of the linguistic material that was around him. Um, and he had a few different tries. In fact, there's, there's a famous story about um, he got a bunch of his friends from school together when he was probably, oh, I guess maybe 14 or 15. And he had them all um, sort of learn the sort of the, the bare bones of, of his first try at a language. 
And the only person who was really jazzed about it was Zamenhof himself. The other friends were like, yeah, you know, that's cool, man, but I'm not really, it's not for me. It's not for me. Um, and, but Zamenhof kept trying. Um, there's an apocryphal story that his father was not a fan of this and that he, in fact, took the notes of Zamenhof and burned them while he was at university in Moscow. However, that was probably something that was uh, thought up by one of the first biographers, or maybe we would even say hagiographers of Zamenhof, Edmond Privat, uh, who was a Swiss Esperantist and, and wrote the first sort of biography of Zamenhof after his death. Uh, but certainly Zamenhof's family and parents thought this was kind of a harebrained idea, uh, and they certainly knew it wasn't going to pay the bills. So he went to medical school in Moscow, supposedly did very well, uh, but this was still always kind of in the back of his mind. Uh, so when he graduated, uh, he had a difficult time getting a position because of the economic circumstances in the time. He moved around a lot. Um, and sort of part of that instability was that he uh, had some time to dedicate to Esperanto since he wasn't practicing medicine uh, all the time. His practice wasn't really uh, at its full capacity. And he, he gave it another go. He kind of used some of what he had come up with as a boy, uh, along with some other material that he had sort of come up with himself. Uh, and he published what we now call uh, the first book, La Unua Libro de Esperanto, um, in 1887. And uh, he had a bunch of copies printed. In fact, um, you would probably wonder, well, how did he have the money to print those copies? He uh, married a woman named Clara Sibernik, whose father uh, was, uh, owned a soap factory in Kaunas, which is in modern-day Lithuania, but at the time was also in the Russian Empire. And uh, he spent his wife's dowry to print uh, these little pamphlets. I think he printed up maybe 10,000 of them. Uh, and he, uh, he basically sold them or gave them away, sent them off to eminent people. And uh, interestingly enough, there were people who got this pamphlet and actually learned Esperanto and wrote back to uh, Zamenhof in Zamenhof's new language. In fact, there's, there's even a couple of stories of people who were local to him in Warsaw uh, who learned the language from this little pamphlet and then knocked on his door and you know, started speaking him in Esperanto at the door. Uh, from there, Esperanto spread first to Sweden and Germany, where there were pretty significant groups of uh, speakers of a previous international language, which was known as Volapük, uh, which was kind of a strange language. It was uh, basically, if you tried to take all the grammatical features of German and just kind of regularize them a little bit, um, that would have been Volapük. Um, and, and it wasn't a, a great idea for an international language, but nevertheless, uh, this was the age of idealism. It was the age of the beginning of internationalism, right? And, and people really were thinking, we need to have strong international institutions, right? This is when um, they're starting to regulate the telegraph and the radio and the Red Cross and all kinds of other things internationally. Um, so people think, well, there needs to be an international language. The only one that's come along so far as this volapuk, so let's try it. Uh, and, and two significant sort of constellations of volapukists, uh, one in Germany and one in Sweden, uh, find out about Esperanto and they start to learn it. And in fact, that was really, really important because of the political um, challenges in the Russian Empire. Uh, Zamenhof had a very difficult time, even though he kind of had an in with his dad having been a censor. Uh, getting anything through the censor's office in Russia. Um, and in fact, the first periodical that was in Esperanto um, was basically banned in Russia after there was an article written by Leo Tolstoy um, that had been banned in Russia that uh, Zamenhof translated into Esperanto, put in his magazine, uh, and then, of course, you know, hoped and prayed that there wouldn't be repercussions. So from that first sort of foray into Central and Northern Europe, uh, it spreads pretty much like wildfire, but the place where it really took off in largest number uh, was interestingly enough in France, even though France uh, you know, was the country that uh, spoke the reigning international language of the day. It was really popular in France, really popular among um, upper middle class um, 
socialites and educated folk uh, in France. And, and that's really where the Esperanto we know today uh, was born, with the input of Zamenhof, but with this really large group of very dedicated Esperanto speakers. Um, they were the ones who first organized Esperanto congresses for people from a lot of different countries to come together and speak Esperanto. Um, they got the first books published in Esperanto. Uh, and, and Esperanto really was this sensation. And it really was growing at an amazing pace until the First World War came along. Uh, and then, of course, the heartland of the Esperanto speaking world, France and Germany, uh, were tattered and ripped apart by war. Uh, and that really set the Esperanto movement back a lot, along with, of course, the death of Zamenhof. He also died um, during the course of the First World War, not in battle, but of natural causes in Warsaw. Um, so, so that basically gets us to the end of, of Zamenhof's life. And, and I teach classes about Esperanto history, so I could, I could go on for two hours easily, just, just, just giving you the, the highlights. But I think that probably gives you a flavor of how, how Esperanto kind of got its footing. So in the early stages, how many words does Esperanto have? Like you guys are saying like they're writing whole books and articles in it, but did, did this one guy come up with all of the words from scratch? Or was there some kind of way that people could sort of come together and agree about how to add new words to it? I can take this one if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, in Esperanto, it sort of works like open source software in that new vocabulary is added uh, pretty much by community acceptance. Also, there is what's known as the, uh, the base root list, a sort of generally accepted uh, list of sort of word roots uh, that a lot of teaching materials uh, use. And what you can do with those is you can add suffixes and prefixes to make new words. So for instance, if you have the word for coat and you want to come up with coat rack, which doesn't really make sense in English if you just have them separately, there is a suffix that you can add on and you have coat rack. And you just have to know the suffix and the root, and you can use all of the affixes to make new words. There's just a lot of suffixes that are like, what's the general, is there just a suffix for rack in general, like bike rack, coat rack, like every kind of rack, or is it like something kind of more abstract than that? It's a non-closed container. Okay, okay. Yep. I can see that, yeah. Ingle. <laughs> like and, and there's better ones, like, for instance, tool. So, tranchi is to cut. Knife is tranchilo. Cutting tool. That's pretty good, actually. I like that. So, so just to give you an idea just of, of sort of what, what Tim was talking about, um, at the very, very beginning, there was a list of about 2,500 words. And, and that was in um, some of the first books that Zamenhof put out. Um, but Zamenhof knew that wasn't enough. And one of the things he recommended that the first Esperanists do is translate a lot of great literature into Esperanto uh, so that they could figure out, you know, okay, so we've got, we've got 2,500 words uh, and we have this really, really productive system of affixes. Um, what are the limits of that, right? What are, what are the words that, that, you know, you really can't get the subtlety of it if you're just using a word and an affix? Um, you know, wh where's that line? And, and so they did a lot of translation, really led by Zamenhof uh, in the first sort of 20, 25 years of, of Esperanto uh, to really enrich the language. And, and from that came a lot of the words that were later made official. So it's, Tim talked about sort of our, our official list of words. So like most languages, although unlike English, Esperanto has an academy that regulates it. 
Uh, and really what they're doing is they're giving their stamp of approval to something that the speaker community has already widely accepted. Um, so uh, a great example of this uh, was um, in the 90s when computers started to be a big thing, there were questions about, well, what word should we use for computer? So there was computero, computoro, and then there was also computilo. Il being that word that Tim referred to meaning tool, and computi being a verb that means to compute. Uh, and, and in fact, there was quite varied usage for quite a long time, uh, but what ended up winning out was that word that probably is created most according to Esperanto's internal logic, computilo. Now, of course, in this case, it doesn't hurt that the word sounds enough like the word for computer in most uh, sort of Western uh, Indo-European languages um, that it's, it's not really a problem either way you cut it. Uh, but, but that's an example of a word. And in fact, um, the base word computi was made official later by the Academy of Esperanto. So that then of course also computilo is considered um, a standard normative part of the language. But uh, I'm just gonna show you right here. Uh, so this, is the normative dictionary for Esperanto. It's called Plena Illustrita Vortaro. This is the edition that just came out this year. And it has, um, I think about 18,000 roots in it. Uh, and, and in fact, um, the largest dictionary ever published in Esperanto is this dictionary, Grosses Wörterbuch Deutsch Esperanto, Grosses Wörterbuch Deutsch Esperanto, by uh, the German Esperantist Erich Dieter Kraus, uh, and this has in it 180,000 lexical units. Uh, and most of what's in here is actually in that book, Plena Illustrita Vortaro. But because German has so many different words and isn't as productive of a language, they need 180,000 lexical units to be the equivalent of 18,000 words in Plena Illustrita Vortaro. Uh, so, so really, that gives you an idea, right? We're talking about a power of 10. That's how many fewer words you need to be able to express almost anything in Esperanto after you get to a really a base level of understanding. Uh, and yeah, so, so there, are, there are new words coming into Esperanto constantly. Uh, and I think it's a really great thing that there are words coming in. In fact, I'm on the the editorial team of the next version of Plena Illustrita Vortaro. Uh, and, and I just love it when I come across a word that I, I haven't seen before. Um, it, it fills my heart with great joy and rapture. Uh, so like you said that there's fewer words, but would you say that that limits expression or how does that, for instance, I'm just thinking about, I don't know, words for emotion where there's things like happy and sad and things like, but then there's also, you know, grief and exuberance and, and you know, joyous and, and things like that where, where they're kind of just variations on happy, but, but they do kind of have their own meaning too. So does like, do you think that Esperanto has methods for capturing that variety while still keeping it simple? Tim, you want to take a stab at that? It's, um, in my experience, it does. Uh, something that English does, uh, kind of, it, English just seems to want to show off the fact that it's two languages stitched down the middle of Anglo-Saxon and Norman French of, yeah, don't use the same word for the same thing if it shows up more than once in the paragraph. That That's what I was told in college. Uh, in Esperanto also, you still have the ability to do metaphor and creating images with words, which also helps with capturing the expression of more of humanity. For instance, in Chinese, it's much closer to having, you know, one word for things and then surrounding it by others mm -hmm. to give it more uh, of a feeling. 
does Esperanto have unique kind of metaphors or sort of like, I don't know, phrases or slogans that aren't like completely derivative from other languages that are sort of have like developed within the community? You mean like slang? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Well, so they're both slang and there are a lot of great idioms, but I think Tim has some and then I'll, I'll add my favorites whenever. So, okay, in English, there's the phrase, it's all Greek to me. Right. In Esperanto, the equivalent is estas volapukajo al mi. You'll notice the volapuk in there <laughs> of it's volapuk stuff <laughs> to me. Um, there's also, for instance, the word moyosa, which means uh, the equivalent of cool or whatever subgroup equivalent of that word. Right. Um, I've heard a few etymologies for it. I'm not convinced by any of them. Uh, and there's also words like etoso, which is the feel of a place. Like um, your favorite coffee shop, hopefully when those exist as a thing again, uh, has its own etoso. Kind of like a vibe or an atmosphere. Yep, yeah. Yeah. like that. Yeah, so one of my favorite Esperanto idioms is amata cevaletto. Uh, and that, that means um, the thing that you just keep bringing up uh, because it's, it's your, your favorite little horse, right? Your favorite pony, right? You always have, you have to bring it into every conversation that you have. And, and that's, um, I'm sure we all know a few people like that, right? Who have, have something that they just, they really want to hammer home every time they're, they're with you. And, um, and in Esperanto, we, we have a great way to express that, which is amata cevaletto. Um, probably the best source of what, they're not necessarily idiomatic, but they really have deep roots in Esperanto's culture uh, for those kinds of things is a book that Zamenhof himself translated called uh, La Proverbaro, or the, the Proverbs of Esperanto. In fact, uh, Esperanto's, um, Zamenhof's father, uh, who learned Esperanto but was kind of aged when Zamenhof came up with the language. Uh, his name was Mark. Um, Mark Zamenhof uh, loved proverbs and he collected them from all kinds of different countries and different places uh, and, you know, had put out a book of proverbs and um, Ludovico L.L. Zamenhof thought that a great way to give a little more culture to Esperanto at the very beginning would be to translate all these different proverbs that his dad had compiled uh, into Esperanto. And they really took. Um, so there are a lot of proverbs that are used um, from that uh, resource, from that book, uh, up until the present day, especially in literary translation. Um, and, and just to say a little more about, um, you know, the, the sense of, of whether or not there are enough words in Esperanto for things. Um, uh, I've translated a lot of literary fiction into Esperanto, and I haven't found um, any time where I haven't been able to find a similar word with similar subtlety. Uh, of course, you know, you have to be very creative in your use of the affixes, right? And, and that's, that's just a normal part of, of every sort of advanced or serious Esperantist mind, right? Is, is how do you sort of take this apart and then put it back together? in a way that that's kind of makes sense in Esperanto. Uh, and, and that I think is true of idioms as well. Um, with the exception of a few, they, they really aren't a big part of Esperanto because Esperanto is supposed to be this neutral language for everyone to be able to understand uh, and communicate through. And, you know, an idiom is by its very nature, something that is opaque uh, to someone who isn't in that, you know, culture that, it sort of belongs to. Uh, and well, Esperanto has a culture, it has the proverbs, it has moyosa, it has amata cevaletto. Um, those are really much, much fewer and far between um, compared to English, which, you know, just, just loves idioms. Well, it's kind of like when we're kids and we're learning how to read and we're learning how to decode and we're trying to use our context clues and use like prefixes that we know and suffixes that we know to understand what a new word is. Uh, and I noticed this when I was doing the first few Duolingo lessons on Esperanto to prep for this. Uh, and the first two words that you learn are Vero and Verino, man, woman. And then they don't tell you what 
they t and then I know that Kanabo is boy, and then I can guess from my context clues that Kanabino must mean girl. Uh, so you take any, I guess it's that you take any masculine word O and then you add, change the suffix to Eno and it becomes a feminine version of that. Hmm. And uh, there, what, what I under, from what I understand, there are no irregularities, which cuts down on this, oh, wait, is that an exception to this rule nonsense that we have in English? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like every language, or like just- And every yeah. language, yeah. It's phonetic too, right? Like there's no weird like K-N for like me or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything every, every, is. Go ahead, Tim. Everything is pronounced, and that has led to some criticism hmm. because the creator of it was Polish. He identified as such, and Polish has a pretty high threshold for what is too many consonants. Put together, <laughs> which, for instance, uh, the word to know, as in to know a fact, is see. Is that so, like uh, I going into a see? See. Yeah. So, and and that's definitely a problem for. So I I teach um, Esperanto to people who finish the Duolingo course, uh, generally as a part of our big Esperanto summer course here in the United States, which is called NOSC. Uh, and I've taught at that now for three years running uh, and have done some other stuff there in previous years. And, um, you know, pronunciation and getting sort of deprogramming someone's brain for the way that we sort of twist and turn according to American English phonetics is, is always an amazing and fun thing, uh, you know, to get someone to be able to say, okay, right and then bring those two sounds one after the other quickly into the words see us right or to get someone to to actually use the pure vowels of esperanto and not the the diphthongs that we just absolutely adore in english I mean, we, we hardly ever use a pure vowel except as a very brief stopover to you know another diphthong so um so yeah, th those are the kinds of things that uh, make Esperanto, I think, devilishly simple. Um, um, uh, we were kind of uh, remiss here. We didn't ask what your personal journeys were with Esperanto. I'm curious to know how you guys got into it and what made you as passionate about it as you are now. I can start. Go on. I learned Esperanto on a bet. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I've been interested in languages throughout my life. I grew up in Latin America. I can, uh, I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. And I was talking with some friends about languages and the process of learning languages. And being 17, all of us, it eventually turned into this bet that I couldn't learn an artificial language in a month. So I, I looked at the languages I knew about, I'd heard about Esperanto, and I was given the choice between Esperanto and Klingon. <laughs> uh, and I decided to go with the one that was a little bit less harsh on the vocal cords uh, by design, and I really thought I couldn't go through with it, but I, I was surprised that the first day I was able to write things down and they made sense and I could actually sort of read what was in front of me. And by the end of the month, I remember I was chatting with somebody from Hungary and I, my specialty is phonetics and Hungarian sometimes scares me. Yeah. <laughs> and they, as far as I know, did not know any English and definitely didn't know any Spanish. And I am not very versed at all with Hungarian, but we were able to communicate as if we had grown up in the same block, <laughs> in the same city. One month. 
That's crazy. Yes. So are you particularly good at like learning languages or is one month, is that, is that normal for people or how long does it typically take? I was unemployed and without a car at the age of 17, so I had quite a bit of time to pour into it. Sure. But I would say that with half an hour of study a day, within a month you can get the gist of pretty much everything and make yourself understood. Hmm. That's pretty good. Now, but when you were learning it at the time, they didn't have Duolingo, so what were you using yeah. to learn? Project Gutenberg. Oh, nice. So had and still has dozens and dozens of books. And the nice thing about Esperanto is that although it does gain new vocabulary, the fundamentals have been the same since 1905. So you can read material from that time all the way up to now, and you'll be understood. And also, it is built so that it can express the same thing in different ways so that your linguistic habits work. For instance, um, if I wanted to say I am uh, or I am eating, I could go with me estas manjanta like how English and Spanish do it. Um, but it also, if you want to go with me manjas, I eat also works. Um, or um, the, um, the dog uh, became tired. There are two ways of saying that if you're coming from a language where saying it in one word makes more sense. So you're saying that, uh, just for clarity, me manjas could also mean I am eating? It will, it can be understood okay, as that, such. That would be, so if you're translating from English to Esperanto, me manjas is definitely the most common way to say I am eating in Esperanto. So it's one thing that I always have to correct English and Spanish speakers, which are the majority of the people I teach at the North American Summer Course, uh, is, is they love to use participles um, when it's, they're really expressing just one simple action, right? So, so uh, to be in a participle does not give you any more information than just, you know, if you take that participle, take it back a few steps, make it into the normal verb again. Uh, it just happens, it's an issue of style, right? In English, we like to say, I am eating, right? But we also say, I ate, right? right? Um, and, and so, you know, the fact of the matter is um, those sorts of subtleties are things you do have to learn. But like Tim says, you'll be totally well understood whether you say, mi estas manjanta la pizzon, I'm eating the pizza, or you say, mi manjas la pizzon, which also means I'm eating the pizza. Um, and, and there's a lot of flexibility in the way you form your sentences in Esperanto, um, where, where you'll still be well understood. Uh, although, you know, people might think it's a little odd that you put it that way, but as soon as you say, oh, I'm still learning, uh, then, then, you know, Esperantists are pretty much all, um, you know, well aware of both the joys and the trials of learning Esperanto, because we all had to do it at one point in time, right? There are very, very few native Esperanto speakers, and even those who do learn Esperanto from their parents, uh, perhaps if their parents, for example, met through speaking Esperanto, um, you know, they have to take out a textbook and study Esperanto as well to be able to speak it at the level that Tim and I do, uh, because they didn't, you know, get phonics and grammar and everything else in school, because there aren't any schools that teach uh, Esperanto to native Esperanto speakers. They're here and there in different cities and different towns throughout the world, but there aren't enough of them anywhere to have a school for them. And Hans, what about you? What was, what is your story? Yeah, so I was uh, a graduate student uh, in Chicago, um, and I was working nights at a big hospital there, and I am not a night person, so I had to find a way to keep myself awake because I was on call, and I had to be ready. I, you know, I, 
I can't sleep with my shoes on. That would just, that, that doesn't work for me. I even take them off on an airplane. Fortunately, my feet don't smell. Um, and you know, I, so I had to find a way to distract myself. And I brought in the first couple of weeks, big stacks of books into the on-call room. And I would just sit there and read and read and read and read. And, and that got, that got boring after a while, right? I read like 20 novels in the course of like a month. And I was like, this is, this is not working for me. You know, I, I like reading, but I feel like I got to do something else uh, during this time when I have to be ready to run. Um, but, you know, more often than not, you're just sitting there 80% of the time. So I decided, okay, well, maybe I should learn a language. Let's, let's see, what's, see what's going on. Uh, and the Esperanto course had just appeared on Duolingo. Um, and that would have been about five and a half years ago now. It had just appeared like in the last, in the week or two prior to when I decided, oh, you know, I should learn a language. I think it was very serendipitous myself. Um, so I, I used sort of that beta version of the Esperanto course. I got myself some books. I went to the neighborhood bookstore in my neighborhood in Chicago. And I um, just by happenstance found an Esperanto dictionary for five bucks. Uh, and basically I spent every night uh, when I was on call sitting there using Duolingo, learning Esperanto. Um, and because I had already learned a bunch of different languages as a part of my professional career, um, it was really easy for me to pick up Esperanto. Uh, and fortunately at that time, uh, because I lived in the U.S.'s third largest city, there was a really large and very active Esperanto club in Chicago, which still is even today one of the most active in the United States, uh, and certainly much more active than, than the club in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's only a point of pride for the Chicagoans, even though I don't live in Chicago anymore. Uh, and so I went to the Esperanto Club uh, after I had been speaking it for a month um, and showed up, started talking to some people, could understand what they were talking about, could communicate relatively well in Esperanto. Uh, and they asked me to prepare a talk for the following month. Um, so, so I, you know, I had to go home and sweat over my dictionary and, you know, try to figure out all the grammar and everything that I didn't really have a total handle on. Um, but I came back the next month, I gave a talk, uh, and, you know, the rest was history. I, um, then, you know, about a year later, I went to my first NOSC, um, and I was already ready for the highest level course, which was taught by uh, Bertilo Wennergren that year, and he's a, uh, a Swedish uh, grammarian who's one of the leading experts in Esperanto. So from there, I've done a lot of stuff in the world of Esperanto uh, and still do. Have you guys been to that uh, World Congress? I have yet to be one. Uh, it kind of stings because this year, it was planned to be the first one in North America for decades, but needless to say, it did not happen. So I, I have been, uh, I, I go to quite a number of international congresses. Tim, I think you live in Oklahoma, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I live, um, outside of Philadelphia. So it's a lot easier, needless to say, for me to get to Europe than it is for Tim. It's also a lot cheaper. Um, and so for me, it's about the same price to fly to LA or to fly to Europe. And, um, perhaps you've already picked up on the fact that, you know, there aren't a lot of Esperantists in LA, so I'm going to fly to Europe when I have the chance. Uh, and so I, I go there, well, not this year, but in normal years, a few times a year, um, to go to different Esperanto events and to speak Esperanto. Uh, and as a young Esperantist, I have gotten a lot of financial support when I was still in grad school, um, to go to Europe to attend different congresses. Uh, and so now I feel really obliged to pay it forward, uh, not only to help sort of raise the next generation of Esperantists and make them into fluent, uh, you know, really qualified, competent speakers, um, but, but also to give them the opportunity to go and to, to sort of taste the fullness of the Esperanto world. Because when you live in a big, relatively or primarily monolingual country like the US, um, the experience you have in the Esperanto world is very different because you can always fall back 
on a common language. Now that's very, very stigmatized in the Esperanto community, especially at times or in places when you're supposed to be learning Esperanto and having this immersion experience. But of course it happens. Uh, I've, I've definitely come around corners and at uh, our North American summer course uh, and found groups of my students who upon seeing me immediately switch to speaking stilted Esperanto when before they were you know, gregariously laughing in English. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had told them that that was not what they were supposed to do. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, that immersion experience can be quite daunting, I guess, if it's yeah. your first time like that. Uh, sure, and you know, like any language, I mean, to get the level of vocabulary of a very fluent Esperanto speaker, you still have to learn five, six, seven thousand words, right? And that, that's not a cakewalk. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do with the 2,000 words that Duolingo teaches you. It's a lot, uh, and you have a lot more flexibility to express yourself because of the regularity of Esperanto. Um, and, but you're still going to hit a barrier, hit a wall when you want to talk about what you do if you're a nuclear physicist, right? I mean, it's like, you know, that, that, that's not in Duolingo. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next. I was going to ask, like, how technical are we able to take this? Like, theoretically, could you talk about nuclear physics or, or, or give a uh, calculus lesson or something? Absolutely. Um, so, so in my, I'm a theologian uh, professionally, and there's absolutely nothing I cannot talk about, um, you know, whether we're talking about Augustine or, you know, Thomas Aquinas or Luther or Calvin. Um, absolutely nothing I can't talk about just as fluently in English uh, as I can in Esperanto. The, the two for me at this point in time uh, are, are equivalent. Now, be, just as I don't know many words about nuclear physics in English, I also don't know them in Esperanto. But the words are there, right? There are, there are people who are experts in that area um, who, who have decided, well, we need to really have a common um, you know, bank of words that we only use in our particular specialized field. Uh, and, and those words are not infrequently encountered in the Esperanto speaking world. Um, and they're registered in our dictionaries, right? So it's not like I'm gonna say something and then Tim's, because I, you know, Tim is not a theologian, is gonna have to just kind of say, okay, well, there goes Hans again and blowing smoke. Um, you know, he's gonna be able to go to the dictionary and and look it up and you know maybe understand what I'm what I'm saying. Sometimes I don't understand what I'm saying myself. So. <laughs> and. Okay. Oh, uh, just yeah, just as Hans said, there is jargon for every specialty. And I've actually had the opportunity to try to create a jargon in Esperanto for tabletop role-playing games. Mm. <laughs> and something that I discovered very early on in the process and knew it before I started translating material is that in many things in English, every single publisher tries coming up with a unique word or something that is the exact same thing <laughs> and trying to avoid that in Esperanto. Just sort of like simplifying it like a 10 to 1 ratio again, basically. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very grateful to the community who has worked with me and said things like, all right, that word that you use there it's very, very specific, but nobody knows it. Yeah. How about this one here? And working together as a community, we've come up with something that sometimes I fall back to when I'm working in English. So is this like the games community within Esperanto, or is this some kind of like fusion of like games community and then like Esperanto speakers who, aren't, who may or may not like play games, but like are like just sort of helping you develop this kind of niche in like the language, basically? All of the above. Okay, okay, fair. <laughs> that must be awesome to like yeah. tap into, go into this untapped market that of like tabletop role-playing game yeah. vocabulary. I could get into that, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> and in general, like, I'm like kind of like I am kind of curious now. Like, like I was a little bit skeptical at first, but like now, like I don't know. Like I'm excited about like the prefix suffix structure too. Like it, it does sound like kind of like a fun kind of intellectual game, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, it, go ahead. Hans. Well, I was just gonna say if you were like me and you had studied a lot of languages. Uh, but you had never really gotten to, to what you would consider high-level fluency in any language. Yeah. Esperanto is, I don't want to say your, your, your one and only hope, but it <laughs> certainly is a way to gain that fluency that maybe you've hoped for for your entire life. I certainly had when I was um, in Chicago and, you know, staying up nights trying to learn Esperanto and also trying to make some money so I could put food on my table. Um, and... You know, the experience of feeling just as comfortable in another language as you do in your native language, uh, especially one that you've you know only spoken in adulthood, I think is is a really amazing one. And and I still um, to this day uh, am amazed when I I think to myself and I say, okay, so I know what that person said, but did they tell me it in English or Esperanto? <laughs> and I have to just, I have to think to myself, I have to go, oh, okay. And I, most of the time I really can't suss it out because it's, it's just all information in my brain. And I can sort of, I know immediately what it would be if it was in Esperanto. I know immediately what it would be if it was in English. Um, and so, so I think, you know, that's an amazing thing. Another thing um, to what Tim was talking about with his tabletop sort of lexicon that he's working on, um, you know, the Esperanto speaking community is small enough that uh, you're going to feel at home, but it's large enough that basically any interest you have, there are going to be other Esperantists somewhere in the world that are going to share that interest. So um, I already told you I'm a theologian by training and within, I think nine or 10 months, I was corresponding with another theologian, also a graduate student who was in Strasbourg, um, you know, and was, and we were, man, we, we had an awesome time just writing email after email to each other and, you know, talking about books we had been reading and he'd be telling me about, you know, the French theology that hadn't been translated into English yet. I'd be telling about English stuff that hadn't been translated into French yet. And, and it just, it, it really, really has uh, an amazing ability to bring people together because people feel comfortable in it. Um, I think if you've done any traveling, and even before I learned Esperanto, I love to travel, uh, you probably had that experience where you go somewhere and, and you realize that, you know, sure, people know the words in English uh, to do their jobs, right? They can sell me a beer, um, you know, they can check my bag at the airport, they can get me my uh, train ticket at the train station, but you're not going to be able to sit down with them and talk about, you know, the differences in you know the responses to social problems in you know your home country and the country that they live in, right? Their their knowledge of English or whatever language you're using as sort of the bridge language, just they they never were hoping to get to that level, right? They were trained for for sort of a, a limited use pattern, but that also means that so much of what that other country has to offer is off limits to you. Right? You're never going to be able to understand it. All you're going to be able to do is go to the places where they've got the menu in English, you know, where they've got a waiter who's going to be able to understand you know, what you want. Uh, and, and you're never really going to be able to, to meet the people who, you know, we, we all want to see the buildings. We all want to eat the food. We all want to you know, drink the drinks. But, but there are people behind those buildings, behind that food, behind those drinks, who are you know either creating new culture or keeping their culture alive, right? And that means something to them. And I think it's it's so much more enriching of an experience to be able to say, you know, okay, but you know, what does this mean to you, right? Well, oh, you know, my my grandma taught me how to make this, and you know, it's her special recipe, and we still you know serve it in this restaurant, right? Well, that's you're not going to get that. You're going to get, you know, here's the bill, um, tipping not tip not included. You know, that that's the kind of thing you're gonna you're gonna get. So. <laughs> Yeah. But how many Esperanto speakers are there worldwide? What do you think, Tim? This, this, this is a controversial question. I see, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't <even> do controversial <laughs> <laughs> If you want to 
get the, you know, people who can say hello, people who can figure out what's going on when reading the, when reading news in Esperanto. One million is a nice round number for that. People who are really, really, you know, who travel to use it, who you can, you know, talk to as if you were growing up, as if you had grown up on the same streets, uh, fluently and all that, I would say 200,000. Also not bad, actually. More than I was expecting, actually. Yeah, that's pretty good. So you can yeah. actually meet someone in a foreign country, like, especially it, since it's like a tight-knit community who, like, speaks Esperanto, like, meet up and talk to them. I always make sure to have a green star on my backpack whenever I travel internationally. Has <laughs> that worked out for you? Yeah, have you ever, like, had a spontaneous conversation with someone? Not face-to-face, -face, but uh, recently I was in Colombia, and there's an app called Amikumu, and uh, I wasn't able to meet any Esperantists because they were having their national convention 300 miles away from oh. where I was. <laughs> That's frustrating. But I was able to send them greetings and <laughs> talk to them that way. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so I, I would say... I. I think 200,000 is possible for the number of, of sort of people who actively use Esperanto on a regular basis. Um, I think though, if, if you're talking about people like, like Tim and myself who are re really dedicated, really into it, the number I would quote would be more like between 10 and 30,000 people. Um, and of course that still gives you a lot of options because they really are very well spread out throughout the world. Right. So there are there are relatively few large countries where there isn't a significant Esperanto presence. Um, there are some smaller countries, especially less developed countries, um, where Esperanto, if it exists, is, is one Esperantist, right, who who's trying to start a, a group and teach his friends or teach her friends. Um, and, you know, that can be limiting. But but in a lot of places, a lot of places you can go to almost any major city um you can get you know certainly a meal and, and talk with people about what it's like to live there um, there's a great uh program called pasporta servo which the organization of young esperanto speakers which is called teyo runs and basically that's a list of people who are willing to open their home to any other esperanto speaker uh under certain conditions for free Right, so um, depending on where you are in the world, depending on um, you know how much people want to visit where you live, uh, you can get you know a couple of requests a decade, or you can get a request uh, on a monthly basis. I know people who live in New York and in Berlin uh, and in Moscow. Uh, if they're up there, they're they're getting binged a lot right they're getting a lot of requests um for people to stay there when they're in the city visiting both because it's expensive to go there and of course because there are a lot more people visiting um but you know that's that's one way to meet people you also can use apps like amikumu uh, and sometimes just word of mouth works really well right you, you tell somebody um that you know has traveled there that has some connection there oh you know i'm going here next month do you know anybody uh, you know, you send them a message, you send them an email, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you got to look this person up. You know, you'll, you'll have a great time. And, and, you know, because it's a small community, because I know this person, I trust them, I, I always do that. Um, sometimes my wife thinks I'm a little crazy when I, you know, I'm taking her down some dingy Eastern European street and, <laughs> you know, just knocking on one of, you know, 60 doors that only differ by the number on the door. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there have been some, some interesting times, like, um, like when I was in Cuba, uh, that, that was really interesting. Uh, but, but all in all, you know, it's, it's a wonderful way to meet people with a lot of diversity and just, just really a, the people who learn Esperanto generally learn it because they want to they want to get to know you and they want to share the culture that 
that they have as their native culture uh, with others, right? So, so, you know, there aren't a lot of groups of Esperanto speakers who are sitting at the bar, just, you know, everybody's sipping their beer, going, oh, what are we going to talk about? You know, let's watch the Eagles over there. And that's not, <laughs> that, that's not, not a problem. Right. Yeah. I, <clears throat> just as a little uh, interesting side note that I don't know if you've thought about this, but it just came to the top of my head of you saying that Chicago has such a large Esperanto speaking community. That might be due to the fact that it's so close to the um, Baha'i House of Worship, mm. uh, the Baha'i House of Worship in North America, which is only like 15 miles north of Chicago. Mm -hmm. it's like, so the Baha'i faith has like a, a main house of worship on each of the six major continents. And they're, one of their goals as a faith, like it, if you go into a Baha'i center, there'll be a list of tenets of their faith and one of them is there must be an international language spoken by all people to foster world unity nice. and so i'm thinking that maybe because they have this main house of worship so close to chicago that that's maybe there are a lot of baha'is there that are uh faith there that are speaking it well so i was on the executive board of the group in chicago and to my knowledge unless they were real quiet but there are no baha'is who are a member of the club and in fact in some of my work in ecumenical circles I, I met with representatives when I lived in Chicago of the Baha'i House of Worship in, um, you know, greater Chicago. And I asked them, because of course I was this, this new, very ardent Esperantist. I said, oh, so I know, you know, international language is one of the things that you, you really strive for. Uh, and their answer was, well, the international language that, that we believe has come into the world is English. Um, and, and that, in fact, was taught by um, one of the more recent um, Baha'i leaders, oh. I think his name was Shoghi Effendi, said yeah, that English, English is going to be the official language. And in fact, he himself translated most of the major Baha'i texts into English so that there would be a definitive authorized version. Uh, and you could forget about Persian and any of the other languages that the earlier Baha'i works had been written in. Um, so so there's, there are a lot of Baha'i um, Esperantists, or I mean, a lot. There is a handful, right? There aren't a lot of Baha'is in, in the world to begin <laughs> I with. I love this, Yeah, they overlap. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, you're talking about the Venn diagram right. and a very, very little bit of overlap. It exists, but yeah. But there, there's a handful. There's, there's a Baha'i Esperanto League um, that works to, you know, promote Baha'ism to, or the Baha'i faith, excuse me, um, among Esperantists and works to promote Esperanto among Baha'is. Yes, yeah, well, I... I also bring that up just because, um, uh, well, you, as you're a theologian, so you probably know a lot about the Baha'i faith. I am quite active in my local Baha'i community. And oh. the, not the, the, the founder's son, uh, Abdul Baha, gave a speech about the importance of Esperanto and how it could be such a, a powerful, useful tool. Uh, I guess, but if you're telling me that Shoghi Effendi later, I didn't know that he had said that English was going to be that language, but that's, I'll take that. As, and then I also remember reading that L.L. Zamenhof's, maybe his daughter or his granddaughter. His daughter, Lydia. Mm -hmm. And taught Esperanto as well as the Baha'i faith together. Yes, she did. And um, there's a wonderful book written in English about Lydia Zamenhof, which is just called Lydia. Uh, and, and it talks a lot about her, her life and her work, uh, both as someone who traveled and did tours teaching Esperanto and also as someone who was, you know, also traveled and, you know, taught and lectured about the Baha'i faith. Uh, and, and she really um, was very, very active in it before her untimely death uh, in concentration camp during the Second World War. Um, the one, uh, how long have we been Let's going see, now? I don't know if it's, oh, it's almost eight. Oh, it's oh, been, about an, it's been okay. almost an hour, but. Um, yeah, I guess we, like, what do you guys see for the, the future of Esperanto where it does sort of seem like, it originally was sort of supposed to be a universal language, but it does sort of, for better or for worse, it does sort of seem like, like English is taking that role. So would you say like the Esperanto community still wants that though, or still wants to sort of promote this idea that it could be a universal language that everyone learns? Or like, I guess what sort of like, niche does it seem to like do you guys envision for for Esperanto? Kim, what do you think? I uh, am I would be overjoyed if somehow Esperanto became became the international language. 
But what I strive for and what I hope to do in, say, Oklahoma City, where I live, is have communities that carry through with the idea of Esperanto. Because Oklahoma City looks a lot like Bialystok did in Zamenhof's day. There is, the, it's bisected by highways and rivers. And if, say, you go from the north side to the south side, the language you're most likely to hear spoken in the grocery store changes from English to Spanish. And if you go from the west side to the east side, the dialect of English is going to change mm. from Appalachian English to African American English. <laughs> and what I hope to do in Oklahoma City is to use Esperanto as a way to bring those communities together. I like that. I didn't know Oklahoma City was so like diverse and kind of had those like three separate groups like that. But that's really cool. I like that. Yeah, so I I think that Esperanto is what you make of it. I, I think that there are um, certainly people who um, are, are working toward this sort of far off goal of Esperanto becoming at least one of the world's sort of bridge languages. Um, and, and I support that goal. I think that it's a, it's a noble goal. And I actually think um, that in, in the history of ideas, right, um, 150 years isn't really that long for an idea to take off, right? It, the, the fact that Esperanto has, has continued to exist and to thrive and, and to grow organically from the grassroots um, into what it is today, I think certainly does not preclude the possibility that it could be one international language among many. And when I say one international language among many, I really see it as having the most utility at high international levels, mm. right? Um, so at the UN, uh, at, in the European Union, right? Um, among, you know, organization of American states, th those kind of international organizations, as well as in smaller organizations, right? So, so I, I am a Lutheran. Uh, and there are 80 million Lutherans throughout the world in 170 countries, right? Um, most of us do not have a common language when we come together for huge international conferences and assemblies to do the business of the whole church throughout the world. Um, and, you know, we, we hire translators. We work uh, very hard to make sure that everybody can speak a language that they, they feel comfortable, you know, talking about important theological concepts and pastoral concerns in. Um, but, you know, if, if your native language is Russian, and there, there are Russian uh, Lutherans, uh, you're not able to come to the floor and speak, right? You have to speak in Spanish, English, French, or German, right? If you're, you're one of the growing group of Chinese Esperantists or Chinese Lutherans, uh, you have to come to the floor and speak one of those four languages. Um, and, you know, there certainly are people who have those qualifications. They maybe got their doctorate in Germany or in the United States um, or in France. But is that going to feel as natural to them as speaking their native language? Almost certainly not. Um, so, so I see there as being use cases where Esperanto is really useful and very pragmatic. Right, because paying a bunch of translators for a two-week-long convention to be there after hour, day after day, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And, you know, how much would it cost if you're doing that every few years from now until the end of time? You know, how much would it cost to have Esperanto be one other course in every seminary, every Lutheran university throughout the world, right? And I think you can make the same argument in the EU. You can make the same argument at the UN. Um, and at the UN, in fact, the argument's even simpler, right? The idea would be that you don't have a translator who translates, um, you know, from English into Arabic and from English to French and from English into, you know, all the other UN languages, but rather you have one person who's 
responsible for translating between Esperanto and their native language. And then those other people are listening to the Esperanto and they're translating it into one of the other five UN languages. Um, and, and that too would, would cut down on sort of static waste uh, if you wanna talk about it in that sense. Um, so, so I think there's a future for Esperanto in that regard, but I, I really see, uh, you know, just the way to explore the world's cultures through Esperanto uh, as its greatest gift. Uh, and, and I s think that there are always going to be people that are drawn to that idea, uh, right? Even people speak a language um, where a lot of that material is accessible to them. Um, they're going to want to be able to see it with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears and actually talk to someone who's, who's living that culture, not just read about it or hear about it from some, um, you know, English speaker who's maybe able to serve as that, that bridge. Another thing that the Oklahoma Esperanto group has been working towards is creating materials and framework to help preserve and grow Native American languages. Because Oklahoma, although it may not seem like it uh, from a distance, is one of the most linguistically diverse states in the United States. And many Native American languages are very, very capable of deep expression, which is a nice way to say as a language teacher, freakishly terrifying <laughs> to learn as a second language. And what we've been doing is trying to create, uh, I'm thinking of the word here in Spanish, that's not the language we're doing right now, to uh, create relationships with language revitalization efforts to do things like, for instance, a Muskogee to Esperanto dictionary. And I've actually been studying Muskogee. I say Muskogee instead of Creek because I also know a bit of Greek. And when I say those together, people think I've stuttered. <laughs> of, and when I was reading the materials, it from English to Muskogee, I would come across things like, oh, this is what you put in a word to say that it is causing that. And I was able to look at some examples and then go immediately to the practical uses of it because Esperanto, well, there's a suffix for that. <laughs> That's a cool suffix. I, I, you guys might have talked to me into learning Esperanto. I was, I was like suspicious before, but like I'm really liking this like suffix concept. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. good. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we were we were originally gonna we were originally yeah. gonna learn German together, but yeah, now. No, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if you learn Esperanto, you'll definitely be able to go to Montreal in 2022 with Tim and me, and and we can all hang out and talk in Esperanto then uh, at at the World Congress, which will certainly be a, a great delight, uh, because as Tim said, it's gonna be. The first time, I think, since the 70s that it will have been in, in North America. Oh. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, you've definitely inspired me. Uh, five and a half years and you're on the board, you're fluent, you're teaching courses over the summer, you're going to world congresses, you're meeting up with people overseas who speak it. Uh, that's yeah. quite, a, quite a journey to take in half a decade. So um, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, I'd love to uh, keep you guys in touch uh, if I have questions in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you have anything else, Caitlin? I think that's all I got. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.